We're continuing the sermon series through the Gospel of John, this morning reading from chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the Black Pew Bibles. The reading of God's Word in your Black Pew Bible, it is found on page 888. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Holy Word. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have not left us to perish in our sins. But in your great love and rich mercy, you have sent forward your Son and given him to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so we pray in his name, Lord, that now you will help us, that you will send forth your Spirit and proclaim the word of the gospel, and that your word will not return unto you void, but accomplish that for which you send it. This we ask in the name of him who lived and died for us and who rose again for us, that in him we might have life, life eternal. To the praise of your name, amen. Let us hear the word of God. John 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is probably the most well-known and perhaps the most often memorized, perhaps the most often quoted verse in the whole Bible. And well, it should be. In the King James Version, 25 words. 25 words which in their essence summarize the teaching of the whole Bible of God's purposes for the redemption of the world, God's worldwide love given through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that a world which is otherwise perishing in sin would not be condemned, but have eternal life. Now, as we think of John 3.16, we 
probably as a as a freestanding verse. And and it does quite well on its own as a freestanding verse, but it's important to remember that John 3.16 occurs in a larger context. It occurs in that passage in which we hear Jesus in conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jews, the upstanding, respectable religious leader, to whom Jesus said, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I tell you, you must be born again. John 3.16 occurs in that same passage in which Jesus teaches Nicodemus that only the Holy Spirit can give new birth, new life to spiritually dead people. And so it's important for us to understand that John 3.16 occurs, is found against that dark, backdrop of human sinfulness and spiritual deadness and our helplessness to do anything for ourselves to save ourselves. And therefore, John 3.16 is seen against that dark backdrop of our desperate need for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For our salvation by God's free grace and God's undeserved love. And that is exactly what John 3.16 is all about. John 3.16 is all about what God has done for a world of helpless, hopeless sinners who do not deserve His love. Now let's let's break it down. John 3.16 begins with God. Don't take that for granted. Think about it. Think about God, the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, who said, let there be light, and there was light. The uncreated creator who has no beginning and has no end. The high and holy one, infinite and eternal, almighty, all-knowing, perfect in righteousness, before whom no secrets are hid. The one who knit you together in your mother's womb. The one who knows your thoughts before a word is on your tongue. The true and living God revealed in the Bible is the great I Am, the one who needs nothing from anyone, depends upon nothing for his eternal existence, the one who owes nothing to anyone. And the question is, What is this holy God's disposition toward a world of sinners in rebellion against Him? How would He deal with His human creatures, creatures whom He created for His own glory, in His own image, creatures who have turned against Him and broken His laws and worshipped dead idols? Now, this is the question which John 3.16 answers. And the answer ought always to amaze us. And if we're not amazed, if we're not startled, bewildered by the love of God, let me just put a parenthetical uh, statement to me here. It, It is as though we have become numb to 
because we, we take it for granted. And so we're not startled. We're not amazed. We're not bewildered by the love of God. And it's because, basically, it's because we don't understand two things. We don't understand, first of all, the pure holiness and perfect righteousness of God. And therefore, the absolute demands of his justice against sin. This is something that's completely fallen out, I think, for the most part of popular religious culture in America. We have no concept of the absolute demands of God's justice against sin. And secondly, we don't really understand the depth and degree of our own sinfulness. The infinite offense of our sins. The wretchedness. The abomination of our iniquities. You don't hear talk like that very much anymore. It, 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 it hurts our feelings and offends our personal self-esteem, doesn't it? But it is what clearly what the Bible reveals if we want to understand biblical Christianity. You know, if we have a very minimal, a fairly minimized view of God's holiness, as though he doesn't really care about our sins, you know, he's, he's cool. And if we have a very minimal view of our sins, as though, oh, they're only natural, you know, nobody's perfect. very minimal view of God's holiness and a very minimal view of our sins. It follows quite logically. We will have a very minimal view of God's love. As though God's love could be taken for granted. Naturally expected. As though God's love were no big deal. It's just out there in the air we breathe. But when we consider the holiness and righteousness of the uncreated Creator, and when we think seriously about the world's rebellion against the King of the universe, the world's hatred toward God, there's no other way to say it, then we can begin to see how amazing the love of God truly is. God so loved the world. What is the degree? What is the extent of God's love for this world? What kind of love is this? Or as the old spiritual hymn says, what wondrous love is this? It is not mere sentiment. It's not sentimental love. It's, it's, it's not a love of, of, of emotional affection or emotional attachment as though God is so dependent upon us, you know, that he, he has to have our love, and so he, he puts up with us. No, 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 no. It is not the love, it is not a love which God, which causes God to oogle over us. Is that a word? Oogle, oogle? It is not a, it is not a love which causes God to ogle over us as though we were his darling grandchildren. That's not it. This love is the steadfast love of his covenant faithfulness. This love comes from God himself. It is the love which acts in accordance with his eternal purpose 
for the redemption of the world. It, it is the love which acts with mercy instead of judgment, with compassion instead of condemnation. God so loved the world. The world in its entirety. The world both Jew and Gentile. People of every tribe, every nation. Remember again the, the backdrop. It, these words would have been quite shocking to Nicodemus and quite shocking to to any Jew of the first century because the Gentile world in the first century, much like the, the 21st century unbelieving world today, it's a world of deep spiritual darkness and idolatry and, and wickedness. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, that is not a minor problem. It is the problem for us all, all the peoples of the and, and how does the Bible describe this world which God so loved? Well, if you look at other passages of Scripture, Romans 1, for example, speaks of the, un, the, the, the Gentile pagan world. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now that's a description. That's the divine diagnosis of the fallen human heart. That is the human condition in its fallen, unredeemed state. It is not pretty. And Paul's letter to Titus describes the fallen, unredeemed condition of humanity in much the same way. Using these words, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the divine diagnosis of the fallen human heart. You get the picture. It's not pretty. And John 3.18 states plainly, again, in, in the context of John 3.16, we have it clearly stated that there is judgment and condemnation for those who do not receive salvation freely offered in Christ. The scripture says whoever does not believe is, is condemned already. The picture here, you see, is, is not that the world is a neutral place, a sort of morally neutral place. It, it's that, that the world is already under the sentence of condemnation and death. The judgment has already fallen. It, it, it fell upon the world when it fell upon Adam. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. That is the curse of death which sin brought into the world. And that is the natural state of man, according to the scripture. Under condemnation, already under judgment. So now here's the point. When we read John 3.16, 
God so loved the world. We ought not to think that God loved the world or that God loved us because we were lovable. There's nothing in us or about us that would cause God to love us. That might sound harsh. It might sound negative. But, but, but think about it. If you think about it, you'll realize. It's really what makes the gospel really good news. Because here's the gospel. God's love for you does not depend upon you. That's some of the best news that you'll ever hear in your whole life. God's love for you does not depend upon you. God's love for me does not depend upon me. What if God's love for me depended upon me? What if God's love for us depended upon us? How lovable we were. How intelligent we were. How productive and successful we were. How we did the best with what we had to work with. How talented we were. How good we were. Well, let me ask you, how good would we need to be? What if God's love for you depended upon you? Oh, that's a question that would drive you to the depths of despair. And it does drive some people to the depths of despair. Because they do not believe the gospel. That God's love flows freely out of his own eternal being. And that has been proven and shown to us through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. God does not love us because of who we are. God loves us despite who we are. That's the best news I've heard all day. And here's the, here's the thing. Don't stop there. He loves us in such a way as to overcome and to remove, to do away with, our unlovableness. You see, he doesn't ignore the reality of our sins. He atones for our sins. He has paid the penalty for our sins, which means he forgives our sins. And don't underestimate that just because you've heard it so often, maybe all of your life. Don't underestimate the power, the depth, the significance of what it means that God forgives our sins. It means that He removes our sins, the history of our sins, and the offense of our sins completely from us so that through the grace and mercy offered through Jesus Christ, we stand before Him as if we had never sinned. The Scripture says that He, he casts our sins into the bottom of the sea, which is a metaphor, a figure of speech, which doesn't say enough. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Never the twain shall meet. That is the forgiveness of sins which is offered through His Son, Jesus Christ. As the Scripture says now, and, and as I said in Sunday school, in, in many ways, the letters of Paul throughout the New Testament, the other letters of the New Testament, are, are in a sense, are in a sense an, an explication of John 3.16. 
Paul writes to the Romans, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows us His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us sinners. While we were still God's enemies, He died for us to make peace with us. Now we really need to hear the Gospel in ways that shock us and amaze us. Christ died for whom? Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ did not die for pretty good people. He did not die for people who needed a little help. He did not die for people who made a few mistakes but showed great potential for improvement. He did not die for people who impressed God with their goodness and their kindness and their fervency in prayer. The Bible says in no uncertain terms, Christ died for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This is what John 3.16 is saying in such a beautiful and simple way. God so loved the world. God so loved the ungodly, sinful people of the world, you and me, that He gave His only, uniquely one and only, only begotten Son, one with the Father, the Eternal One. This gift is the gift of His Son as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And John 3.16 obviously has reference to the cross. And Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 8 when he says that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up, gave Him up for us all. The New Testament also speaks of Jesus Himself giving or giving up Himself for us, all of which are references to His death on the cross. And in a verse which ought to make our hearts sing, Galatians 2.20 says that Jesus, the Son of God, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Paul writing autobiographically, but writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that his autobiography applies to each one of us personally so that we can say about ourselves, for ourselves, what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me. Loved me. And gave himself for me. When you come to terms with that, when that verse, by the power of the Spirit, breaks through, penetrates like an arrow and hits the bullseye of your heart, there, there you find your salvation. There it is over and over and over and over again on the pages of Scripture the love of God made known through the death of Christ for the salvation of sinners who did not deserve His love but rather deserved to die under judgment. Whenever the New Testament speaks of the love of God, whenever the New Testament speaks of the love of God, it always has reference to the death of Christ for our sins. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, 
the wrath-absorbing, wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. And, and, and think for a minute, well, I should say, think for a lifetime. Would you just think for the rest of your life about this? What it means that God gave his only begotten, his one and only son. If we go back to the very first verse of the Gospel of John, we read, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's a breathtaking statement, and it's more than we can get our finite minds around. But what it is saying is that from before time, in the realm of eternity, before creation, before time and space, there was this personal union of two divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, the eternal Word. And they had what the Greek indicates as a kind of face-to-face or mirror image relationship, a, a, a oneness, a union, distinguishable but inseparable. And then, at verse 14 in chapter 1, John goes on to say, the Word, the eternal Son of God, became flesh. The Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God came into the world as a man. It's nothing less than saying, God, the uncreated creator, became a man. For this purpose. To suffer the sins of the world. To die under the divine, holy standards of his own judgment. To satisfy the demands of divine justice in order to redeem his people. Now look, you've you've heard me ask this question before. So those of you who have heard me ask this, you know the answer and you're welcome to say it out loud, okay? Can God die? No. God cannot die. But could God become a man? Could God become a man who could die a human death? We know the answer to that is yes. The amazing thing is that he would do so. And if God became a man who died a human death, think just a minute about that. If God became a man who died a human death, that would mean that God himself, the uncreated creator, had somehow, in his infinite wisdom, entered into and experienced human death in the depths of his own infinite and eternal being. It's mind-blowing. I know if you can't get your heads around it, that's okay. The point here is that by giving his only begotten eternal son and giving him up to death for us, God himself, the infinite and eternal one, has gone all the way down into the depths of human death for us. He has been there. He has done that. And he has undone death by the death of his son and his resurrection from the grave so that whoever believes in him, whoever entrusts himself or herself into the Son of God, submits to him in faith, might not perish, but have eternal life.
eternal life through the Son of God. Eternal life is what we all long for because it is what we were created for. We were created to live forever in unbroken fellowship with the uncreated Creator. So now look, please don't think about eternal life in terms of the crass and and selfish, self-centered experience of worldly pleasure. Though though surely, eternal life will have pleasure indeed, which will make worldly pleasures pale by comparison. But, 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 But please, please, surely you don't think of eternal life as as the uh, ceaseless enjoyment of sinful pleasure. No. Or even creaturely comfort pleasure. No, 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 no. There's, there's, there's no comparison. Please do not think about eternal life in terms of the silly cartoon caricatures of heaven. Don't worry. You won't be floating on a cloud or fl- flitting about with angel wings while playing a harp. I know none of you wants to do that. Don't worry. That's not what you're going to be doing. That's how our culture, even our religious imagination, so denigrates the promise of life everlasting. Eternal life is that glorious life for which you were created and for which you long for in the depths of your being. Imagine, if you can, a world without sin, untouched. Imagine your life untouched by the corruptions of sin, untouched by disease. Imagine a world in which there are no broken hearts. There are no shattered dreams. A world in which you have no regrets. A world in which life in all its fullness, abundant life in body and soul pulses through every fiber of your body, every moment of life in which your strength never diminishes, your spirit never dims. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? A life over which sin and death have no power at all. Not even a shadow. But it's not merely a matter of of life free from physical pain and decay. No, no, that's just the side benefit. <laughs> More than that, finally, finally, we will be completely set free from the power of sin and the presence of sin in our life. That's what's troubling us. We just can't get it right, hard as we try. But finally, in that day, we will be able to love God with Because His love will just fill our being, our resurrected, glorified being. His love will fill us like an overflowing fountain and flow right back out of us. Finally, we will be able to love God as we ought. And in that find our highest joy. Finally, we will be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. Perfectly, unceasing. Finally, finally, we will be who we were created to be. Finally, we really will be able to 
glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Eternal life, brothers and sisters, is not a consolation prize. It is God's victory over sin and death. This is the life which Christ died, for which Christ died and rose again to give us. And it is the victory which he shares with all those who trust in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Oh gracious Lord, how great is your love beyond measure, beyond words. How we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would flood our hearts afresh with the knowledge of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And may this love further conform us to the image of your Son, that even now we might live as those who have been delivered from darkness and raised up out of death unto life eternal to live now and forever for the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord.